Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel, a series called Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. So let's turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 to 30, with a message entitled, And If Not. When in the Second World War, German bombers began to unload their bombs on London, many Britons realized how desperate the times were. What if the Nazis decided to invade? Was the British war machine ready for such an onslaught? Some London papers led with an article that had large letters on the opening page. But if not, they read. Because England at that time was still a biblically literate culture, almost all readers recognized what was being said. It was a quote from Daniel 3 verse 18. Our God is able to deliver us, but if not, we will not serve your gods. That quote, taken from another time and another age, provided strength and resolve and a determination never to bow to the Nazi war machine. Today, we'll discover what that quote meant when it was given and what it says to all of God's people today. It will provide us with resolve, courage, and a spirit of confidence living in a strange land. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three faithful Jewish friends of Daniel, had been appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But with the coming of a new edict, they found themselves at odds with the wider Babylonian culture. A massive statue had been erected on the plains of Dura, and it was now law that this statue was to be worshipped as a symbol of solidarity to the state. The cost of refusal was death, and not just death, a kind of a poetic death. The statue had been smelted in a large furnace, and the ones who refused to worship the statue would be thrown into the very furnace from which the statue had originated. The Bible tells us that the Chaldeans reported to the king that the three Jewish men refused to bow to the statue. Often the term Chaldean and the term Babylonian are used as synonymous terms. But in the history of Babylon, it was the Chaldean race which governed Babylon. It may be that those who had formed on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought of themselves as members of a master race. And as such, they were only too happy to find a reason to kill those annoying Jews who had shown them up and had been placed into positions of national leadership. No doubt the Chaldeans would have thought that Jews in a position of leadership were out of place in Babylonian affairs. But now things had changed in their favor, for when these Jewish men, out of their conviction, thought that to bow to the king's statue would break the first two of the Ten Commandments, the Chaldeans knew that this was the advantage that they were seeking. They immediately reported to the king that these men were committing treason. We're now reading Daniel 3, 13 to 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, getting past the king's fury and past his demand, we notice the king's incredulity. He simply can't imagine that the commitment of these three Hebrew men will hold. 
And so he offers them an opportunity to change their minds and then asks them a pointed question. Who is the God who will rescue you? That was supposed to strike fear into their hearts. What Nebuchadnezzar could not have known is that he's not the first king to have asked that very question of a Hebrew. When Moses first met with Pharaoh and demanded that he let Israel go, according to Exodus 5 verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Clearly, Pharaoh looked around at his power, the might of his kingdom, and the talk of some tribal Hebrew god seemed less than concerning. But in a short period of time, Egypt was devastated. His firstborn son was dead. His army was drowned in the Red Sea. I don't think he ever asked that question, who is the Lord, in a disdainful way again. When the forces of the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem in the days of righteous King Hezekiah, the Rabshakeh, or the commander of the Assyrian army, shouted at the people of Jerusalem who stood behind the walls of Jerusalem. 2 Kings 18.35 records him as saying, Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So the Rabshakeh, And the king of Assyria thought of the Hebrew God and only sneered. If these weak Jews rely on the Lord, well, we're about to show them a lesson. And yet that very night, God's angel of death struck down 185,000 Assyrian fighters in one night. Those two, Pharaoh of Egypt and the king of Assyria, never forgot the words of arrogance spoken against the living God. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know about this. I remember years ago attending a retreat with a a group of young Romanian seminary graduates, teaching them everything from preaching to pastoral care. Now, while there, I was informed that that beautiful retreat center that we were meeting in had been a key government training center for the next generation of communists. They boasted that they would destroy the Christian religion in a generation. Well, there we were in the very place that the communists had built and were training the next generation of faithful pastors to declare the gospel in that land. Let all dictators take note. Please notice that I'm not saying that in every case, God immediately destroys the arrogance of those who have lifted up their hands against the living God. For his own purposes, God may allow an overconfident dictator to have his day. He may do this to humble his own people or to break our attachment to this world, but in the end, God is never mocked. All who decide to take God lightly will rue the day. So let's continue to read verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And there's the phrase that the British papers used, but if not, or and if not. Regardless of how God decides to treat this current situation, whether it be miraculous deliverance or terrible suffering for us, our gate is set. We are the people of God, and we would rather die as such than to be delivered from our present troubles and compromise our faith. See, all true believers feel this way. For we must choose between suffering and the sure promises of God on one hand, 
and fame and pleasure and compromise with this world on the other hand. Then as Martin Luther said so eloquently, then let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. See, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he in his infinite wisdom deems that this is not the hour of our deliverance, we will by no means ever betray our God and acquiesce to your demands that we should bow before an idolatrous statue. Let's continue to read verses 19 to 23. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. The phrase, the expression of his face changed, meant that with the statement that had been made, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had stepped across the line in which there was no way back. At this point, even if they had apologized, there was no way back. See, I think that there are times when this is precisely what our faith demands. The Christian faith is not a belligerent faith. Jesus told us that the meek shall inherit the earth, and and Galatians 5 reminds us that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is gentleness. We all know people who are willing to go to battle far too frequently. Not everything is worth fighting for. Not everything is worth laying down one's life for. But some things are. The glory of God is, and allowing for a faith that is syncretistic, that combines the worship of the Lord with the worship of other gods, well, that's a line that any true believer must never cross. Our faith is not one of our commitments. Our faith is our only commitment. Loyalty to country, to family, or to any other thing ahead of our covenant with God is absolutely unacceptable. As Paul would say in Romans 14, verse 8, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Great words of challenge and encouragement as we continue with this great story of faith and commitment found in the book of Daniel. More next with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, these young men, so committed in their faith, are examples of young men and women that continue to be called by God to stand true to Him in how they live their daily lives. And our ministry to young adults in doubt has been designed to encourage, challenge, and teach young people to confront and live for Christ in today's culture. Difficult issues of life and living are addressed in the weekly In Doubt podcast and throughout its insightful and direct articles and resources. So if you're a young person content only to live a life that represents Christ, go to indoubt.ca and find out more. It will be well worth your time. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Nebuchadnezzar's face changed. He had now made his choice. Men had died for crossing him before, and in an instant, he decided that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would die. The furnace was now heated seven times beyond what it was normally heated as an illustration of the heat of his anger. I'm reading Daniel 3, 20 to 23. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. From the reliefs that are left behind, it it would seem that smelting furnaces of that day were shaped kind of like one of those old milk bottles that used to be delivered to a person's house. There would be at the base of the furnace an opening for inserting burning materials and above it a larger door for inserting the ore to be smelted. It was no doubt to this upper door that the three Hebrews would have been taken up a ramp to be thrown in. Apparently, there would have been no closure to this opening so that the king would have been able, at whatever angle he was placed, to see straight into the furnace. Of course, because of the king's irrational rage, the heat of the furnace killed the men who threw the Hebrews in. The three Hebrews themselves would have been tightly bound, unable to resist, and simply thrown in almost like cords of wood. But of course, that's not the story. The real story begins with verses 24 and 25. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, as a polytheist who believed in many gods, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar only recognized that a divine figure was within that furnace. He knew that there was something supernatural going on in there. But for our purposes, we need to stop and ask who this figure was. For Christians reading this account, we might be reminded of the confession of the centurion, who after seeing Christ crucified said, surely this was the Son of God. Now, another alternative translation has him saying, surely this man was a son of God. Now, both readings are true to the original text, and in some ways, all of it hangs on what the centurion knew and believed about the God of Israel. If he did believe, the Son of God makes sense, and if he did not, a Son of God, in a polytheistic sense, seems like a reasonable translation. That brings me back to Nebuchadnezzar. That he sees a fourth man in the furnace is undeniable, but it is what he attributes this to that is not clear. But that brings us back to what actually happened in that furnace. Is this a Christophany, that is, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the First Testament? It might well be, we can't be sure, but one thing is clear. What this man does in the furnace is indeed a prefigurement or a type of what Christ would do for the entire human race. For by his death on the cross, he rescues us from the fires of hell. He is the fourth man who saves when no one else can. Were it not for this one, there would be no salvation from wrath. But let's get back to the text of Daniel 3. And I'm I'm reading verses 26 to 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. 
Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want us to notice several things before we attempt to understand what this means to us today. First, would you notice what the king of Babylon, what this polytheistic pagan king calls the God of Israel, the very land he has defeated? It's unheard of, but he calls the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the Most High God. As we noted after the incident of Daniel interpreting the king's dream, this does not mean that he has become a convert. In Nebuchadnezzar's worldview, Bel, Nebo, Asher, Anu, and a whole list of gods are still gods. His world is a world in which various gods control everything from rain to crafts to sunlight to darkness to fertility. And in that sense, nothing has changed. His worldview has been left unaltered. But what he is forced to acknowledge is that the God of the Hebrews is able to do things his gods could never do. And this is a tacit admission that this God is greater than all the gods. He acknowledges the supremacy of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Second, please notice that because of this, if this supreme God forbids his followers to worship any God but himself, it would be improper for a law to be enacted in Babylon that forces his followers to do that which is forbidden of them. In short, what Nebuchadnezzar does is build a clause into the law that provides religious liberty for the Jews. And third, and this is crucial, he builds in legal safeguards to protect the Jews from being discriminated against. Anyone who speaks against the God of the Jews is to be torn limb from limb. And so the kind of trap that had been laid against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can never be used against them again. So let's make an application. The net result of this miracle is not the conversion of the king and the utter transformation of Babylonian culture and society. I mean, that just never happened. There would always be and will always be a vast difference between Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon will remain Babylon, a society that was originally built around the mindset of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It will continue to the end of this world to be the great harlot, the great prostitute who is drunk on the blood of the saints. But I see two things occurring in this event. We notice first that legal safeguards now protect the people of God. And secondly, we notice that God displays his majesty and his power within Babylon. Babylon cannot hold back the glory of God. And the application, well, it should be obvious, shouldn't it? The kingdoms of this earth are not the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. It's simply wrong to think that any nation on earth, ours included, none are excluded in this, should be thought of as having some form of election unto grace. We are not the promised people, that is, as a nation. There is but one chosen nation, and that nation is Israel, and after the coming of Christ, but one chosen people of God, that is the people of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The nations of this earth will continue to be what they have always been, pagan. 
But we need to pray that that God would intervene and provide Christians with safeguards and protections in which the free exercise of our faith is not limited. Notice, we're not praying that our nation would become Jerusalem, but we are praying for peace and, and protection and laws that would ensure our freedom to worship our God. But we also need to pray for more. We want God to declare his glory in Babylon. In this strange land, O Lord, reveal your majesty and splendor so that many will come to know and love the God who sent his one and only Son into the world to be our Savior. And that's our calling as believers in Jesus Christ. We are called upon to witness to Christ in the midst of the lands in which we live. Heavenly Father, I pray for our land. I pray, O Lord God, that your power and might might be displayed in this land so that men and women, boys and girls throughout our country might know and hear that there is a God in heaven who has sent his only son to be the savior of the world and might turn to you in great numbers. For this we pray, O Lord God, do this even in our day. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. John, thanks for setting us a bit straight. I think some of us think about that story and maybe not with the clarity that you've offered. But one of the things that you said was this, Babylon cannot hold back the glory of God. Now, I think about that and I think, you know, every day I think we sort of go in fear and trembling about all the things that are happening in our world. And maybe we don't give enough credit to God that in essence, you know, his will is going to be done. Yeah. And even the title that I've given this uh, address, And If Not. See, our God is able to deliver us. Our God is able to show his glory and to set his people uh, in the place of honor in this nation. And if not, and if he decides for his own purposes not to allow us a moment of revival, we still will not bow before the gods of our culture. I think that we need to have the kind of confidence that says, in the end of the day, whenever that day comes, it will be clear that God's glory stands paramount. So I I would encourage us to continue to hold the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before us to say, I am so confident in the eventual uh, triumph of God's ways that even if in this moment it doesn't appear that way, if not, I still will not bow. What a great challenge. Well, back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's drawing ever closer. That's our New Testament Greece by Land and by Sea tour. Taking place April 24th to May 5th, 2017, space is already limited, now at more than 50% capacity. So if you want a life-changing experience venturing to locations so critical to the growth of the New Testament church, and you want to spend 12 days under the teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our website at backtothebible.ca. Imagine setting foot in Ephesus, Athens, Patmos, and even beautiful Santorini. That's eight days by land and four days sailing the Mediterranean with Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway, and special award-winning musical guests, The Weebs. 
So remember, for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or check out backtothebible.ca. And remember that the cost of all of Back to the Bible Canada's vacation events are met by those who participate, and no ministry funds are used for this purpose.